At the commencement of this year's legislative session, the Vermont State Senate President, Tim Ash, referred to the rural and working class citizens of Vermont as, quote, the other Vermont. He encouraged legislators to not forget about the other Vermont and keep them in mind while creating policies this year. I found this terminology very interesting because the act of othering designates a person or a group of people as inherently different from oneself. And there is a connotation of inferiority. In colonial studies, the act of othering enabled the colonizers, say the, the British over the Indians, enabled the British to create imagined representations of the conquered Indian people, and this allowed them to enforce geopolitical dominion. Ash is a state senator from Chittenden County and calls Burlington his home. Burlington in Chittenden County and Montpelier form an urban locus that enforces its will on that of rural Vermont by othering rural and working class Vermonters. Ash, who is a member of Vermont's elite, has identified Vermont's double. Last week, we explored a few salient examples of the double motif in film, specifically Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train and Curtis Hansen's L.A. Confidential. The figure of the double traces its origins to German Romantic literature. The German term doppelganger was coined in 1796 at the beginning of the Romantic movement. The Romantic movement was an intellectual movement that defined itself as counter to the Enlightenment age. While Enlightenment thinkers prioritized reason and rationality, Romantic thinkers placed primacy on emotion. Love and lust are powerful emotions, and while they certainly play an important role here, the Romantic in the Romantic movement is with a capital R. In the last episode, I also explained that I find the concept of the double most fascinating when it signifies aspects of a person that he suppresses traits that he doesn't allow the world to see because these are not considered acceptable by society. So the double can sometimes represent the unwanted and unseen part of the self. The understanding of the double as the unwanted part of oneself ties back to what Ash said about rural and working Vermonters being the other Vermont. That is how I understand the setting up of the double as it pertains to Vermont politics. So Meg, are you saying that the elites see rural and working class Vermonters as unwanted? You bet. The push to remake our state's economy away from goods and manufacturing to service sectors proves it. Let's take the example of the fevered pitch of climate change activists in Vermont. With just about 600,000 people in a small, mostly rural, green state with the cleanest air you've ever breathed anywhere, why is climate change activism so important in a place like Vermont? 
Are these activists doing anything about India or China? Both countries have over 1 billion people. Neither China nor India will stop developing its economy at the expense of the environment just because a few deep-pocketed activists are terrorizing Vermont farmers in the U.S. Joel Kotkin, author of the 2014 book, the new class conflict explains the elite's hatred for fossil fuels and ideological opposition to nuclear energy as a quote class conflict between those that are willing to make small environmental trade-offs to improve their economic condition and those who don't need to do so because they are already sufficiently wealthy end quote now let's consider the impact of act 250 a controversial land use law that began its life as a zoning regulation. When the highways opened up Vermont a couple of decades ago, there was concern about overdevelopment because the towns had no zoning laws. So the need to protect Vermont communities and preserve the unique bucolic character of the state led to the formation of Act 250. But in the 50 years since, it has morphed into an anti-business, anti-development, bureaucratic leviathan. Not only are fewer Vermonters and business owners willing to go through the cumbersome permit application process, most flatly refuse to engage with the process altogether. I was speaking with the producer of my TV show, Dialogues with Meg Hansen, and he told me that the YCN network was looking to install a new satellite. So they had a choice between Vermont, uh, specifically Mount Escutney, or go to New Hampshire. So while they were looking into the process, they learned that in order to install it in Vermont, they would have to pay $10,000 more. And this was because of Act 250 regulations. So he said, as soon as they learned that, the decision was instantly made. New Hampshire, here we come. On my show, Dialogues with Meg Hansen, I recently interviewed Dave Sulia. He is a Pittsford farmer and founder of Repeal Act 250, a growing grassroots movement to get rid of this controversial law. If you'd like to learn more about it, check out the website fact250.com and you can watch the two episodes of my interview on ycnnow.com. Let's look at a few more statistics that prove Vermont's economy is dying. In 2018, Vermont was the only state in the nation to experience negative job growth. In 2016, Vermont was the only state where poverty rose. Over 70,000 Vermonters live in poverty today, and around 50,000 households make only between $15,000 and $35,000 a year, which is a lower end of what's considered the middle class. Nearly 23,000 more Vermonters needed food assistance in 2017 than in 2007. Given that our state is in such an appalling economic condition, one would imagine that our legislators are busying themselves with crafting policies to move forward to address the crisis, that our journalists and media are holding our politicians accountable, and that our entire public discourse is saturated with analyses and discussions and, and robust debate about tangible economic solutions. But one can only make such assumptions about our media and politics 
if one is not acquainted with the concept of the double, the unwanted and unseen other. The harsh economic realities hurt the non-elites, and therefore the focus is far from the economy. Instead, the spotlight has been on abortion, gun restrictions, and various forms of virtue signaling that make Vermont's elites, both in the Republican and Democratic Party, look good in their eyes to the rest of the world. Remember H57, that vaunted House Bill number 57? Phil Scott signed it into law. Now, the law codifies the most expansive abortion laws in the entire nation. The state of Vermont has abortion laws that rival that of North Korea. Let that settle in for a second. North Korea. Well, unfortunately for the Vermont Democrats, they learned that the hand that giveth also taketh away. Phil Scott may have signed H57, but he vetoed another controversial bill that would have imposed a 24-hour waiting period following gun purchases. Vermont Democrats tried to present this measure as a way to prevent suicide. The logic behind that argument is clearly flawed, but last biennium, Phil Scott passed sweeping restrictions on gun ownership that in fact violated Article 16 of the Vermont Constitution and the Second Amendment. He actually raised the age of owning a gun from 18, which is according to the Second Amendment, to 21. And that was not based on any logic. There was a scare about a potential school shooter, but apparently he just wrote something in his diary two years ago. There wasn't enough evidence, and if you look at it from a logical point of view, there wasn't enough to convince him to support those sweeping restrictions. So it's unlikely that he vetoed this bill because the logic was unsound. There is a deeper political agenda at play. According to recent reports, T.J. Donovan, the state's attorney general, may very likely run for governor next year. This is a dream that he's been aspiring toward, and he's often referred to as the golden boy of Vermont's left. If T.J. runs next year, then he will be a formidable opponent. So Phil and his Scott Troopers are bracing themselves for the worst. And so he needs the gun owners from both the right and left, but especially the right to back him. And so he's trying to curry favor with them with this veto. I recently spoke with a member of the Vermont Federation of Sportsmen's Clubs who is in the know, and he told me that. They believe the House will be back next year with their version that called for a 72-hour waiting period and a mandatory gun lockup, and that's what they really wanted to get passed, so they won't come back to try and override Phil's veto. All of this just goes to show that the people in charge of the state of Vermont are more interested in virtue signaling and not really doing anything about growing the economy, making this a place where young people can have careers, not just part-time gigs, and be able to buy houses instead of having to rent forever. I see these as detailed illustrations of my basic point. Just as in Washington, D.C., Montpelier has failed to address the massive job loss in the Green Mountain State that has resulted from globalized trade. Rather than representing the interests of American citizens as a whole, 
state managers and the permanent political class has aligned itself with these transnational elites to further advance global integration and social order that is predicated on sustainability and not economic expansion for all Americans. The dispossessed American who forms the double to the transnational elite. That double found his and her voice in Donald Trump. Whatever you may think of Donald J. Trump the person, the fact of the matter remains that his candidacy in 2015 and 2016 and his presidency thereafter has been the platform for this particular double. You can call it the forgotten man, the dispossessed woman, whatever name you want to call it. The non-elite faction of our society, the schism that I talked about, which is not between the, the right and the left. That's not the significant one. The schism between the top 20% and bottom 80%. That found a voice in the bombast and candor of Donald Trump. It's not like he was the first one to talk about it. Other people have. But his long-standing fame, his massive platform, and the fact that he won has made this particular schism a part of our everyday conversation. Looking after American workers and putting U.S. citizens first, this forms the essence of economic patriotism or economic nationalism. The elites both on the left and on the right, insist that we are a nation of immigrants. But one's ethnic heritage or immigration background is besides the point. Because the United States is a nation of citizens, and that's what should matter first and foremost. Had it not been for Trump's win and the rise of populism and this push toward economic patriotism, we would never be talking about how globalization has hurt 80% of the U.S. population. Now that that cat is out of the bag, you'll notice how the elites are bent on shifting the focus away from China or the shipping of our manufacturing jobs abroad to automation. Now it's all about technology. Oh, the real problem here is the fact that technology is going to take away all the jobs. Again, you'll notice that it's a passive voice, the rise of technology, just as the rise of China, is somehow inevitable. We are not slaves to technology. We determine how technology will impact our population. So if the advent of self-driving vehicles means that 3 million American truck drivers will be out of a job, then I am absolutely not on board with that. The elites consider such refusal to submit to the power of technology and their favored global order as problematic populism, which they insist threatens the very basis of liberal democracy. But populism by itself is neither good nor bad. It simply acts as a vehicle for the will of the people when the tyranny of the minority reaches breaking point. That's where we are in the United States, and most definitely in the state of Vermont. But far from losing hope, we're doing our best and writing what's left. Join us next week.